And welcome to the Spur Leadership Podcast. This is episode number nine. I'm John Nidell here with the founder of Spur Leadership, Mac Richard. Mac, how are you? I'm outstanding, man. It's good to see you. Thanks good for to being see here you. today. Absolutely. Now, you got a book. It's out, finally. I'm sure Hard it's a long to time coming. You know what's so funny, John? We, we got these books actually in hand just last week, and it's a little bit surreal to hold it in your hand. This thing actually started... This project started two and a half years ago was when we actually really sat down in earnest and started outlining, planning, and writing. And it's, it's been an incredibly, it's been a really fun experience. It's been, a, it's, it's the craziest experience to actually write a book and then see it come out into the world. Yeah. But it's, it's cool. And I'll, I'll say this too, I'm very, very excited about what I think this is going to do in people's lives. I think in, you know, whoever actually picks this up and reads it, I think it's going to make a significant difference. And that's that's ultimately what I'm the most excited about. But it is it is an exciting day for sure. The title of the book, of course, is The Trust Protocol. Where did that title come from? What is The Trust Protocol? It's a great question, man. We We wrestled a long time with what to title this thing, you know, and it really was born out of the spur leadership movement that, that came out of our church here in Austin. But we decided that, you know, for my first book ever, I think most people disqualify themselves from the leadership conversation. Now there are a lot of leaders in the world who want more information, who search for information, who look for ways to grow and get better. But most of the general population I'm not a leader. I, I that's not me. I don't have the title or whatever, which I understand, but I also understand it's too bad because everybody has influence. Everybody has people in their lives who look to them as an example for something. And so as we were really looking for how to title this, we felt like trust was really the best word that could possibly be used for what we're talking about. And then the word protocol, I just thought was a cool word. It reminded me of Jason Bourne a little bit or maybe a medical test of some sort. But the word protocol just means a practice, a, a, a sequence of events to follow. And, and that's what really what the trust protocol is. The trust protocol, it, you know, as I define it in the book, is really just forging credibility through integrity and action. And I use all of those words very, very deliberately because I think it is forging, almost like you forge steel. I mean, it is. It takes it takes some serious heat and hammering to develop and to cultivate credibility through your life, through your work, through your family, through your church, and really felt like the way that that credibility gets forged is through your own personal integrity, which comes from what you say. And, and what you believe, but it also comes from your actions, you know, and what mm -hmm. you actually do. I think it's really important to remember that, you know, the words of our mouths and, and the actions of our hands, those things really do matter. And so I felt like, you know, if we could communicate that in a, in a way that resonates with people, you know, the, the subtitle of the trust protocol, it's the trust protocol, the key to building stronger families teams and businesses. And and as I've talked to people and and run this by a lot of people since we started this project, uh, I just feel like when you say the word trust to people, watch their eyes light up. People are dying 
for trust, trustability in the people that they know, in the mm-hmm. institutions they're a part of. And and I think that, you know, it's really interesting, John, that you you know, you asked what is the trust protocol. As I said, we we started this project two and a half years ago, but I think the release of this book right now may be perfectly timed in a way that I certainly wasn't smart enough to have orchestrated or been able to plan out. I, I think if you look at our world right now, trust is in short supply. And and you know, obviously our political discourse has has degenerated to an all-time low. But I think I, I think that trust is one of those things where it, you could be disillusioned, you could be frustrated with what you see, but I think, and try to make the argument in the book, that this is our great opportunity. This is, this is a massive opportunity for people who do want to be you know, what we refer to as practitioners of the protocol, people who actually put it into practice. Now, when I think of trust and leadership, I mean, those two things are absolutely intertwined. You can't be a leader without the people you're leading trusting you. And I don't, I don't think anything really illustrates that better than the military and people who right. have served in the military. And I just think about someone leading a troop into battle yeah. and that trust has to be there. Uh, talk about just leadership and the trust that you have to build with the people that, you know, you may have manager as a title. So these people right. are kind of forced to have you as the leader, but in order for you to be an effective leader, trust has to be there. Absolutely. And I, and I think if you if you lead, or let me say this, if you manage by fear, either fear of my paycheck or fear of being ridiculed in front of my peers or something like that, you can, you can affect certain results short term. You can get some stuff done that way short term. I, I think we've all had experiences with, with bad leadership, with a teacher who was, you know, degrading or a coach maybe who, you know, was just mean mm-hmm. or whatever. Nobody wants to play for somebody like that very long. Uh, but by the same token, if you think about it, you know, I, I, I realize this and there's a there's a chapter in the book called The Best Teacher You Ever Had. If you if if you think about who's the best teacher or coach or mentor or manager in business that you've ever had. Just put that person front of brain. I, I have no idea who's in your mind right now, but I know this. They were hard on you. They, they pushed you. They challenged you to not settle for what you had been able to accomplish before, but they pushed you beyond what you probably thought you were capable of. Right. But the interesting thing about that is you let them push you. You didn't always like it. And there were times probably when you're doing homework at 1230, 1 o'clock in the morning, where you're like, I can't believe this assignment. But in retrospect, you let that teacher, you let that coach push you specifically and really exclusively because you trusted them. And it's because you trust them that you let them push you and you let yourself find new plateaus and new heights of accomplishment, of achievement, that you didn't even know you were capable of, but it all comes back to that element of trust. Right, and what you're kind of referencing too is is pushing through hard times and having someone there who's willing to Absolutely. push you through those hard times. And I love the title of, of the chapter in, in the book, How Many Can You Do When You're Tired? Choosing <laughs> grit 
over quit. Yeah. Where yeah. did that come from? Well, I laugh when you say that because it came from a, a real life experience that I had. I have a really, really close friend, a guy by the name of Webb Smith, who now lives in Columbus, Ohio. But years ago, Webb introduced me to CrossFit. And I remember asking him, would you train me in CrossFit? And I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, you know, I, I was a a marginal athlete in high school. I've, I've worked out, I've trained, I've done that kind of stuff before, but I have never in my life experienced the pain that is possible in a six minute CrossFit workout. <laughs> I'd never been through that in my life. And, and there was a line that Webb would say to me when I was usually on the ground, gasping for air, trying to, uh, trying to act like I was getting up, but actually trying to take a break between reps or between different exercises. And, and Webb would get on the ground with me and go, come on, Mac, how many can you do when you're tired? That's where it counts. That's where it matters. And, you know, I remember at the time thinking, you need to just shut up. And, and I, I thought ugly things about his family of origin and all those kind of things. <laughs> but what I came to realize, John, is that that really is, that really is the difference maker the difference maker between good and best. When you push through discomfort, when you push through pain, whether it's in a workout or in a leadership setting, you know, or, or even, you know, in, in my world, as I prepare a sermon, there are a lot of Sundays, a, a lot of weeks where I think I'm, I'm pretty much ready for Sunday. But if I would just push through that extra hour or two studying and preparing, then I would be that much farther ahead in my preparation, and then by by extension, my delivery on Sunday morning, and so that idea of how many can you do when you're tired really became a a, a mantra that that I use throughout my life, mm-hmm. and and I've I've taught it to my kids. I use it as a as a dad. I've been like, I understand you're tired, but we got to keep going. We, we you know, there's still work to do, and and the the idea of grit. You know, Angela Duckworth is a is a professor of psychology and wrote a phenomenal book about grit has an incredible Ted talk about it, but we kind of took that idea and, and just, I, I love, I love acrostics cause I think they help, rem- they help you remember stuff and actually put it into practice. And for grit, we just kind of said what grit really is, is God honoring, relentless, intentional tenacity. G-R-I-T, God-honoring, relentless, intentional tenacity. Yeah. And if you hang on to all those kind of things, it's amazing how many facets of life get better. You know, I, Julie and I have been married now for 26 years, and, and as you, you know Julie, but I married so far over my head, and we've had our moments. You know, I, we, we have never seriously contemplated divorce. I, I haven't. I don't think she has. <laughs> but but we just knew we were in this for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And it we and so, you know, early on I kind of developed this mindset where we weren't always on the same page. You know, sometimes we needed to kind of step back and recalibrate a little bit as husband and wife. But I remember thinking, I am not letting go. And, and you kind of grit your teeth. You know, but you just go. I'm not doing this. I'm I'm seeing this through, and that's that relentless kind of that that mean spirited tenacity, 
that you just you're just going to push through and figure it out, not just to survive in marriage, but but to thrive. Right. And, and I think if you if you set that as your goal, whether it's in marriage or in the marketplace or as a parent or or whatever, you 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 aim for what we were really ultimately created for, and and, and so much of the good stuff is on the other side of not quitting. Yeah, that's good. Speaking of, of trust, and you talk about uh, parenting, mm. how does trust play into you as a parent? That's a great question. I think, honestly, trust is the absolute non-negotiable of parenting. I think, I think all parenting comes back to trust. If, if, you know, if, if you have the entire Bible memorized and make your kids memorize it, but they don't trust you, it ain't going to work. They may have some scripture memorized and I think God can use that, but it isn't going to work as far as the parenting relationship. I think, you know, we, we've said all the time that, that we were never in the business of making our kids like us. They're, they're going to have enough friends if we do our job as parents. Um, but, and this is a, this is a massive, but, but they have to know that we like them. They have to know that we're on their side, right? That everything we do as mom and dad is ultimately designed to help them be everything they were created to be. Now they're not always going to see it in the moment. You know, I don't always see it in the moment when somebody mentors me or somebody corrects me. But if there's a track record of trust there, I'm a lot more likely to take it. I'm a lot more likely to hear it, to listen, to process it, and then maybe to apply it. And that's what we really want from our kids. You know, my good buddy Andy Andrews says, you know, the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It does not say, train up a child in the way he would go, and when he is 18, he will always do what you told him to do. It doesn't say that. It says train up a child in the way they should go. He should go. She should go. That means that we're paying attention to our kids' individual needs. I, there, we would have been dead in the water as parents if we had parented Joseph the same way we parented Emily. Now, we tried to be fair and equitable, but their personalities are so polar opposite. One's a boy. One's a girl. I mean, they were night and day apart, but we had to figure out how do we parent in a way that resonates with Emily so that she knows she can trust me. Part of that sometimes is making sure she understands that I'm going to hold the line no matter, you know, or Joseph, how do, how do I parent in a way that he knows he can trust me? Um, and, and that's why, you know, parenting is a lot more art than science. There are some right. hard and fast rules. You know, if you say something, you got to back it up. That's a given. Um, it's hard to do, especially when you're tired. You know, <laughs> Vince Lombardi once famously said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. I don't think there's anywhere that's more true than his parents. You know, when you're tired, man, you, you're just like, I just can't do it again. But that's not an option. We, you know, this, this is, as the Godfather says, this is the business we have chosen. So you're in the game. <laughs> Suck it up and deal with it. What about parents who truly have their be the best interest of their child at heart, but maybe fall short in that arena of establishing that trust. Where do you think 
they go wrong? Well, that's every parent who's ever drawn a breath. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all fallen short as parents. And, and I think I think 98% of parents really do have their kids' best interest at heart. I, I don't think there's any question about that. There, there are some, you know, sociopaths out there who beget children. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about healthy adults who really do want their kids to be everything they're created to be. I think the first step in building a culture of trust is loving authority. It's teaching your kids that as mom and dad, we are the authority in the household, which means you can count on us. You know, the authority is also, by the way, how you're going to eat. Right. And you're going <laughs> to like to eat. You know, it's how it's how things happen in here. But but the, but what that means is you have to respect the authority. Doesn't mean I'm always right. I promise you I will make mistakes and when I do, I will apologize. I'll own it. It's amazing how much credibility you can earn as a leader, as a parent by saying, "You know what? I blew it. I was wrong." Um but but ultimately I think our kids have to understand that authority is a gift. But the only way they're going to understand that authority is a gift is if they trust the authority. And I think a lot of times kids rebel. I think kids get anxious, frustrated, stressed out because mom and dad don't hold the line. Mom and dad don't say, if, if I say this, I mean this. Um, and which means we've got to be a little bit more careful about what we say as parents. You know, a lot of times if that happens again, and then we start counting, you know, one, right. don't make two, <laughs> that, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, I, I think everybody who th- aspires to be a parent ought to have a dog for at least six months and, and learn how to teach a dog that they can trust you, mm-hmm. you know, to get a dog to do what that dog ought to do for that dog to be the happiest, there are a lot of parallels to parenting. Now, it's obviously very, very different. Don't send me an email or get upset with the parallel. <laughs> I'm just telling you, there are a lot of parallels. But you teach kids that you're trustworthy, that they're in a safe place, I think, first and foremost, with that loving authority. And, and, and when I say loving, I mean loving. Hug them, hold them, listen to them, talk to them. But ultimately, they've got to understand if if mom or dad draws the line, mom or dad's going to hold the line. That's actually an act of love for a child. And I think that's a great segue into the business world. And I, <laughs> I love the, the title of the first chapter in the book. It's called, I Love You and I'll Fire You. <laughs> Which, I know. Where does that come from? Well, and that, that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but that's why I titled that chapter that way. That, again, was from a, a real-world experience that I had. I was brand spanking new to ministry, to, to life as an adult. Um, we didn't have the term adulting back then, but that's what I was doing for the first time. And I, I worked for a guy... Uh, Ed Young, who's the pastor of Fellowship Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth and Miami. They now have campuses there. But Ed called me into his office one day. I was a part-time student pastor. I was in seminary, engaged to be married. Julie, my wife, 
and Ed are actually cousins. So we, we went way back. Like mm-hmm. I'd known Ed since I was in fifth grade. And he called me into his office one day, and he goes, Matt, come in and close the door. And I, I was like, hey, cool. And I went bebopping in, just, hey, bud. And uh, I remember sitting down, and he said, he goes, Mac, I want you to know, man, I, I love you. I'm glad you're here. I love having you on the team. I was like, man, thanks, Ed. And uh, then he said, he goes, I, he goes but I, I want you to understand something. I love you, and I'll fire you. And I remember thinking in the moment, and this is, I remember this just, I could take you to the exact chair where I was sitting, a little gulp at that point, or <laughs> very much. I remember thinking maybe you could love me just a little bit less. But what I came to understand was those two things were not mutually exclusive. He could love me, and he went on to explain. You know, speaking of the why, he went on to explain and say, "He said I love you." He goes, "But I can't keep you around here just if you're just going to be a good guy." Being a good guy is the price of admission. If we're going to pay you, then you got to produce. You got to do real work and be a contributing part of this church, a contributing part of this team. And for the record, I believe in you, or you wouldn't be here. I think you've got the talent, I think you've got the potential. But in that same conversation, he told me, he said, But from now on, for you, potential is a cuss word. Potential means I just haven't done it yet. And that was a massive, massive milestone moment for me in my life. You know, I had, I had grown up, my parents were divorced and when I was about 12 years old, and, and my dad was, was, a, was a good guy, but he left. And from the day he left to the day he passed away my last year of college, we had a very kind of how's the weather relationship. There wasn't a lot of father-son stuff going on, mm-hmm. the, the, the boys, I think especially, but all kids need from a dad, from a father. And so that conversation with Ed was really a wake-up call for me that said, hey, what you do matters. You, you got to produce. I was, I was a good guy. I was moral. I was polite. I was kind. All those kind of good things. But at the end of the day, you got to work. And you got to produce and put out in this world, whether you're a, a, especially – if you go by the name of Christian, but even if you're not, nobody owes you anything. He didn't owe me a paycheck when I went to work for him part-time while I was in seminary. That was something that I had to earn. And I think that idea of I love you and I'll fire you goes to the heart of the trust protocol. It, it goes to the heart of, you know, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider, let's, let's get deliberate and intentional about how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Well, Ed was living in that reality and living it out with me that day. That was one of the most loving conversations anybody ever had with me anywhere, anytime, throughout any part of my life. When he sat down and said, I love you and I'll fire you. That was that love and good deeds, that community and accountability and, you know, going back to what we talked about, the, the trust protocol, you know, Ed had a great deal of credibility with me. He had forged that credibility over years through his integrity and his actions. And so I knew when he said he would fire me, I knew when he said he would love me, that he really did love me. I knew that. But I also knew he'd fire me. <laughs> and, and that'd be a horrible thing to have to call his cousin, my fiance, and say, I just got, got fired. Yeah. And so, you know, that was that was a huge wake up call. But I think that really 
captured the essence of the trust protocol of that that integrity and that action, the the community and the accountability. He wasn't afraid of awkward Thanksgivings. He was more no, okay, <laughs> no. But again, I think it goes to his sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, you know, now Fellowship Church has multiple multiple campuses. I don't even know. You know, like thousands over, well over 10, 15,000 people come to church there every weekend. At the time, it was about. 275 maybe, maybe, wasn't even 300 people. Ed was, when that conversation happened, I'm going to tell you, I was 24, Ed was maybe 29, maybe. But he had this sense of responsibility to the church at large that he wasn't going to sacrifice just because we were buddies. And, And fortunately, because of who he is, he was able to show me how those two things actually could complement each other. They weren't competing with each other. They could complement each other. And so I didn't even, I had no idea about spur leadership or trust protocol or any of those kind of, there was a lot I didn't have an idea about, but I had no idea about any of those things. But that was really, I think the, one of the earliest examples of the trust protocol that I I remember, you know, in my post-college life, I had a lot of time my mom was a phenomenal mother. She raised three boys by herself. I want you to let that soak in for a second. <laughs> My mom, man, she she lived out the trust protocol before before you know I even knew it was a thing. So you know I, but but it was it was you, your mom's gonna love you all the time. You know your mom's gonna you know where she she's not gonna disown you, but. Ed would fire me. Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge wake up call, but that was really, and that's why, that was why that's where the book starts is with that exchange, but then goes on from there to talk about, you know, how does that trust protocol take root in somebody's life? And then how does it take root through somebody's influence through your family? How do you, how do you cultivate that and, and convey that and pass it on to your kids or in the marketplace, wherever you work or whatever role you have? Yeah. Zooming out and looking at at the book, you've you know, it's your your first book. What led you to finally sit down and say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to write a book and I'm going to write a book called The Trust Protocol. You know, honestly, it was friendship. It was friends of mine that, you know, we had talked about this concept, we had talked about their experiences with it. Uh, you know, does this resonate with you? Do you think this holds water based on what you do day in and day out? Uh, and, and, and it was friends of mine going, Hey, how's the book coming that I got tired of saying, well, I'm, I'm going to do that later. Uh, and, and so when we finally got serious about it, when I got serious about it, it was time. I just felt like the, the ultimate goal, I think of, of a nonfiction book that, that you hope people read has to be, how can I help? How can, how can what this book says, the, the ideas inside of it, the stories, the principles, the practices, how does this add any value or make any difference in their lives? And, and particularly when you talk about trust, you know, as we talked about, I think it's, 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 such, a, it's such a rare commodity in the world that we live in. It's fascinating to me to watch people's eyes light up when you talk about the subject of trust 
And people go, whoa. I mean, you you can watch them. There, there's just this flash of recognition. Um, and, and it goes both ways for, for people desiring trust. But also, if you talk about, you know, when has trust been broken, there you get the same flash of recognition. Everybody has been in that in that boat. And and so I just felt like this was something that that was I didn't have any idea two and a half years ago how timely this would be right now. Um, one of the things that, that I'm very excited about, you know, uh, Senator John Cornyn, he's giving a copy of this book to every sitting U S Senator. Wow. And which is very gracious on his part. But I think if we could speak into the larger culture, let's, let's move out. Like you said, kind of zooming out a little bit. If we could speak into people's lives who are setting the pace legislatively, in our country and, and who are setting the tone of conversation. If that, if, if this could make that kind of a difference, man, I'd, I'd be fine never writing another word that would ever be published. I, I, but that's our prayer with this book. I, I think, I think we have the opportunity and the potential to, to make that kind of a difference. I think a lot of people, when you, when you talk about trust, people can probably think of that time when they felt that betrayal and and that breaking of trust. In, in chapter four, you get into a pretty sensitive subject when you talk about betrayal and processing through that. How does that factor into the trust protocol? Well, it was it was almost the chapter that wasn't because I really did not want to write this chapter. Um, but what happened, John, was I started talking to people about the trust protocol and about trust in general and like you said, you saw this flash of recognition. But then if I asked somebody about betrayal, it was unbelievable. It was universal. Almost every single person would respond by kind of raising their eyebrows and cocking their head a little bit. Kind of like, whoa, been there. And... There's a conversation that I share in the book that I had with General Tommy Franks. Uh, General Franks spoke at our Spur Leadership Conference a while back, and and I asked him about betrayal, and he never he never batted an eye. He gave me that response. He kind of went, "Oh yes, I've been there." But I thought, man, if if somebody in the military and somebody in ministry go through the same experience. It's got to be universal. It's got to be something that every single person has dealt with or maybe is dealing with. And so when I realized the universal nature of betrayal, I just felt compelled to, to include this chapter. And, and I, I tell a little bit about a, a season that we went through where, where there was a series of betrayals. I don't get into a lot of details or, you know, name any names or anything like that. But I tell just enough to say I've been there and, and, and I'm not writing this from theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was through that season that, that I learned and grew so much, but man, I would have, I would have given anything to not have gone through that season. And, and honestly too, part of why I wrote the chapter is because I stayed in that season too long. You know, I, I did forgive and, and move on and, and, and 
honestly, part of what I learned is that forgiveness a lot of times is a repetitive event. Right. It's a lot of times I, I had in my head that, you know, that as, particularly as a Christian, we should forgive. God has forgiven us. We should forgive those, et cetera. And which is true, by the way, I'm not minimizing that. But I kept finding myself having to re-forgive. And I thought there was something wrong with me. And it was through that process that I that I discovered something really, really powerful that you can you can forgive someone, but that doesn't mean you have to retrust them. Now, if it's in marriage, that's a different story. You know, I have if on those occasions when I have let Julie down and when I have made a mistake or or whatever, we have to reconcile. We have to we have to figure out how to get back on the same page. We get to figure out how to get back on the same page, how to forgive each other, and then choose to trust each other moving forward mm-hmm. and and not do the same thing again. But if somebody wrongs you, you know, let's let's take it outside of the church in the, in a business deal or a contract and and they break trust you have to forgive them for your sake forgiveness is a gift you give yourself it's it has nothing to do with the person that has wronged you and that's that's a mistake that i think i've made before is think well you know because let's be honest john sometimes it is fun to hold a grudge sometimes you just i'm not saying i'm proud of that i'm just saying there are those times when you're like you know what i I'm not ready to uh, forgive that person yet because right now I'm enjoying being mad at them. <laughs> but that grudge, that resentment is so toxic in your life, but also in the other relationships with the people in your life who really matter. You know, if you if you hold on to that resentment, it will absolutely infect your ability to connect and relate to and trust the people that you have to trust in your life. And so part of what I talk about in, in, in the book is, is how do you go through the process of moving past betrayal? How do you, how do you really get at this? And, and I, I, think, I think that process is so, so important and understanding that forgiveness sometimes, you know, you, you're going to have to do this again. There will be events, there will be conversations that, that people have completely unaware that they're bringing up an old wound. And man, you've got to just, you've got to rise above it and go, okay, here we go again. There it is. I'm going to choose. And, and forgiveness really boils down to the conscious choice to not harbor resentment. That's, that's to me, that's what forgiveness really is. It doesn't mean that you say, well, nothing, nobody did anything wrong. That's okay. It's not denial. Right. It's not necessarily choosing to trust that person again. There, there's some people that I genuinely love, that I have absolutely forgiven, and I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. Those are not mutually exclusive. But there are other people. There are other people in my life that have hurt me or have let me down, particularly people that you love, that you have to figure out how to forgive and get past that wound, how to get past that wrong that's been suffered. And I I think that's a lot of times the big challenge. But when you do that, when you do the hard work of forgiveness, when when you do push through 
and, and I, I talk about this process in the book and, and get into it in some detail, but you, know, you, you have to acknowledge the pain. You have to acknowledge, and I think especially for men, it's hard to say we're hurt. You know, that just hurt. That just doesn't, that's just something right. in that just kind of sticks in our craw a little bit. But <laughs> you've got to acknowledge it. But you've also, number two, you have to address the pain. You, you have to deal with it and do something about it, including forgiveness, always including forgiveness. But it may be also that you need to talk to somebody, um, like a, a solid counselor a therapist who knows what they're doing and you've got to be discerning about what therapist you you select cuz that's really really important but then once you've acknowledged it once you've addressed it you have to be willing to abandon the pain you have to be willing to abandon it and keep moving you know that that was the thing that i i realized you have to keep moving and because life's too short and and I, I spent too long, candidly, wrapped around that axle, mad, hurt, hurt, mad, and, and and didn't come out of that as quickly as I could have, and certainly as quickly as I should have. And at the end of the day, you alluded to you know your duty as a pastor is to the organization, to the church, right. or your duty as a father and a husband is to your family. So forgiving someone versus forgiving them and then letting them back into the organization right. or, you know, doing another business deal with them. You, you know, right. someone's, uh, they have to look out for the best interests of their company. Right. Uh, I think that's an important line to draw. I think you have to, again, that's your responsibility. Right. You know, if, if you're the leader of a home, of a business, of a church, your first responsibility of a government, your first responsibility is safety. Safety. Now, obviously, that's that starts with physical safety, but it's also relational safety. Are, are your people safe in this environment? And if you've got somebody who's, you know, if you've got a, I think about the old the old cartoon where Wiley Coyote dressed up as a sheep and was hanging out in the middle of the herd. If you've got a coyote in the herd of sheep, you got to get them out. That's your responsibility. Now, you don't have to be ugly about it. You don't have to be mean spirited, but you got to get them out, right? Because the sheep don't need a wolf or a coyote, yeah. as the case may be, and and I think you have to be able. And here's the other thing that's hard about that: not everybody's going to understand. You know, I, I think there are times when you have to when you have to release someone in in a in a work setting. Not everybody's going to understand or agree with the decision to release them. But if somebody lies, if somebody is dishonest, if somebody has betrayed you or the organization, they got to go. That's now, if you if there's and again, you have to you have to have wisdom. You have to be discerning. If this person can be is interested in being returned to the fold in, in being a part of the team, that's a whole different conversation. But if they're like, no, I don't know what your problem is. I don't know why you're acting like this. It's over. Mm -hmm. It is done and gone. The details, you know, severance compensation, all those kind of things have to be worked out. But the decision's made. And not, they, do, not doing that, you are violating trust of everyone else. Exactly. Right. Everybody else would look around and go, whoa, if, they, if that gets to stay, then what, what kind of a group are we? 
You know, I, I heard a football coach years ago, and I've never forgotten this. I think it was a Notre Dame football coach, assistant coach. I wish I knew who who had said this, but he said, "What you tolerate, you encourage." And I believe that with everything I have. What you tolerate, you encourage. And so, you know, we we have a lot of fun, and our our goal has always been on our church staff here. This I want this to be a fun place to work your head off. I, I want people who are driven, who want to work hard. If anybody's interested in punching a, chalk, a clock and going 40 hours a week, they don't need to apply. But we're going to have fun along the way. And, and we're, going to, we're going to challenge each other. I think a lot of times you can, you can help to set a culture by humor, helping people laugh at themselves, helping people not take themselves too seriously, starting with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you've got to be willing to go, I was wrong. Or you know, let people respectfully make fun of you. And I don't, I don't mean just respectfully if you're the boss. I think, I think respect has got to be a two-way street. But I think, I think those things help, develop, help define and then develop and, and I think defend a culture. You know, you got to fight for the culture every single day in every interaction, every exchange. So I tell people all the time, you know, when, when we hire folks, I go, you know, I'm never going to be able to make you rich or famous, but you'll never be bored. And, you know... I'll, I'll make plenty of mistakes. You'll see me at my best and at my worst. But at the end of the day, we're on the same team and we're moving in the same direction. And and that's, I think that's the ultimate responsibility of the leaders to make sure that we are a team and make sure we are moving in the same direction. And that's hard work. Yeah. One thing in the book that kind of made me raise my eyebrows was in chapter seven. You talk about the myth of servant leadership. And that's seems to be at odds with what you would imagine a pastor would be talking about with, with regards to leadership. So what do you mean by the myth of servant leadership? I'm so glad you asked that question, John, because I know that's one of the things that, that people are going to skate by it and, and latch on to, and it's probably going to make some people mad. At least you, you just raised your eyebrows. Um, <laughs> but what I mean by that is, is not the concept of servant leadership being mythology, because it's not. Jesus absolutely led as a servant. He absolutely washed feet, no question. And, you know, when he settled the argument between James and John, who would be the greatest in heaven, he did say, the least among you will be the greatest. But what I think gets lost in translation way, way too often, most of the time, Currently, especially, whenever people talk about servant leadership, they never get around to the leadership part. They talk about serving and, you know, asking people what they want, taking a vote, doing this and doing that, which is which is fine as far as it goes. But when it's all said and done, you can never abdicate your responsibility to lead. You have to lead. Now, like we were talking about earlier, as a parent, your kids have to know that you have their best interest at heart. If you have a leadership role, a position of authority in the marketplace or in a ministry or at work or wherever, that same principle translates. But you can never, ever 
abdicate the responsibility that you have to lead. Yes, Jesus washed feet, but this is the same Jesus who looked at Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Don't get in the way of what God the Father has for me to do. So Jesus clearly served. I'm never, I would never minimize that or minimize the role or the significance of serving in leadership. But my point is you can't mitigate the responsibility to actually lead, to actually make hard decisions that not everybody's going to understand. And that to me is the real myth of leadership, that you can be a servant leader, build consensus, have a team that everybody's going to always agree on everything and move forward. That, that probably, probably would have worked before Genesis 3. After Genesis 3, when sin entered the picture, no. You, somebody's got to make a hard decision sometimes. And the larger your organization, the longer you're in a leadership position, the more complex that organization grows by definition. Mm -hmm. And that's why we strive for simplicity, just to, just to keep it manageable, you know, just to be able to make moves. But it's going to, the more people you have, the more complexities you're going to have. People add complexity. That's a gift. That's a great thing. But you've got to embrace that and understand I'm going to do everything I can to build consensus, but I'm not going to wait until I have unanimous consensus to make a decision. Right. That'll never happen. And it doesn't necessarily mean either that you have to be the person making all of the decisions. Absolutely. There's certainly, I listened to somebody talking about leadership and they talked about recognizing your authority and then recognizing your competency. So in, yes. in areas where you're not as competent, rely on somebody else to lead that area, but somebody has to be making the decision at the end of the day. And remember, and this is something I remind our staff of all the time, remember though that you may delegate the, the decision-making, which you have to do, by the way. That's, you, you've got to be doing that. But you never delegate the responsibility that you have for the overall health of the organization. Right. You you have to share that responsibility, but ultimately there's a leader. There there's somebody responsible at the end of the day who says it may not have been my fault, but it is my responsibility. And that's a big difference. Yeah, if your quarterback throws a, a bunch of interceptions, usually it falls on the head coach, <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. Or yeah, or the you know, if the GM makes too many decisions, and drafts too many interception throwers. Right, that's his responsibility. Yeah, and and he'll be held accountable at some point unless he unless he works in Cleveland. I'm surprised it took this long for us to come up with some sports analogies. <laughs> but and I love the title of uh, the last chapter of the book, "No Exceptions." What did you mean by "no exceptions"? That chapter, I was really excited to actually write. It's it's one of the shortest chapters, and none of the chapters are really long, but it's one of the shortest ones. What I mean by that, John, is the fact of the matter is there is nowhere, there's nowhere, no relationship, no business, no church, no school, no team, nowhere that the trust protocol doesn't work. If people buy in and choose to forge credibility through integrity and action, 
it will work every single time. And now we've given some examples now of, you know, in this conversation, we've talked about examples where not everybody bought in. Not everybody chooses to participate in the protocol. And that's okay. We love everybody. We don't trust everybody, but we love everybody, but we keep moving. But when you find the right people who buy in and who say, you know what, as long as I'm here, I'm going to participate like this. This is how I'm going to live. This is how I'm going to work. This is how I'm going to interact with the people on the team. As long as people do that, it works every single time. No exception. And to me, that's a pretty cool thing. When you can find something, a principle or a paradigm that is universally true, that's something to hold on to. And I believe that the, that the trust protocol is universally true. Therefore, it works. And not in the reverse order. It, it doesn't... It's not true because it works. Mm-hmm. It works because it's true. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is probably a great place for us to wrap up this conversation. I think one of the things that that's really important, and I, and I make this point in the book, is that it's true every time. It's also just about every time really, really hard. It is. It is tough work. It's not complicated, but it is really, really hard work to, first of all, just to be a person of integrity, you know, just to make choices that, you know, just because you're a person of integrity and you, your walk matches your talk, that doesn't mean everything's going to work out great for you every time. It doesn't. Um, but it's worth it. It's worth it at home. It's worth it at work. It's worth it in your church. It's worth it in your friendships. It's worth it as you choose who are the people that you're going to let into your life to be a part, to, to, for you to invest in and to allow them and invite them to invest in you personally, relationally. Man, it's hard work making those choices. But, you know, I, I, I told somebody this the other day. I'm, I don't know that I'm necessarily old, but uh, I'm certainly by no no measure anywhere am I young anymore. One thing I know to be true is that living life this way, leading your organization, being a parent, whatever it may be, the trust protocol is absolutely worth it every single time. As we've said, you can get the trust protocol everywhere where books are sold. It is available now. And when you go out and buy one, just buy two. You'll, you'll want to read one. You'll want to give one away. Christmas is coming up. It'll make a terrific, terrific gift. Uh, and also, when you when you go buy it, if you go buy it on Amazon or if you love the book, go on Amazon, rate it, rate the book, go on to iTunes, let us know what you think about the podcast. We'd appreciate all your feedback on, on Facebook, the Spur Leadership Facebook page. And as always, you can get more information on Spur Leadership at spurleadership.com. Mac, appreciated the conversation. Thanks, John. Appreciate it much. Hey.